Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, crawling over shards of glass, <laughs> inevitably towards the PhD, Richard LaDuke. Hello, oh, Garrett. Oh, Professor Richard LaDuke. Yes, well, no, I, I, I've been fired. Uh, hello, <laughs> no, Garrett. No, no, he's still teaching. <laughs> I still they haven't teach. found out that he does the podcast yet. That's true. At the University of Utah, that'll be grounds for dismissal. Yeah, well, just being a Mormon there. Well, Garrett, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you uh, here today. We, we've got a lot of things to talk about, very exciting things, as we, as we wind down on the uh, five-parter on Witnesses of the Book of Mormon. We're not even close to being done. Okay. <laughs> like, we, we keep right. interjecting other things and making it so we'll never finish. It's true. We did receive an email that talks a little bit about uh, Oliver Cowdery translation that we're going to, you know, kind of squeeze in. All we do is tangents. That's true. The first thing I'd like to talk about is how angry I am at Richard's school, not just for not giving him a PhD yet, but for beating BYU. Go Pokes. What a terrible, terrible game that was. That was not ideal. It likely will impact BYU's. Oh, yeah. uh, They dropped from a five seed to like, they're probably in a play-in game now. They're probably a 16 seed, and they're playing Longmont or something well, like that. Well, it seems like Florida State is always a perpetual playing team. Them or Clemson, always. It seems yeah. always. I just hope we can steer clear of Michigan State, because you know, no matter what, oh, they beat a, everyone in the Yeah, tournament. he's going to have them ready to go. Yeah. He's going to have yeah. them ready to play. Yep. Well, so speaking of ready to play, Garrett, we do have the, uh, the live audience recording. That's going to be coming up on March 16th. It's very exciting. We were working on that today. You were very frustrated because it didn't save after you typed several after, funny things. Yeah, well, well, maybe that of was moderate humor. It was, it was, was middling. Pa- yeah, it was passable. And uh, we were trying to create our site for the tickets, and it it twice crashed and didn't save anything that we had. Yes, it was. He was very frustrated. And in in the recording studio, it is five thousand degrees. Um, and yet somehow Angie and Becky still think that it's quote unquote giant air quotes cold in here. They're in sweaters. They're in shawls. They're yeah. in blankets. If you were to see a picture of, <laughs> of this recording studio, so-called, you would assume that we were in Siberia and there was no furnace and it was January 2nd. Yeah. Yeah. Becky mouthed off to Putin and now here yeah. she is. Next thing you know. It's the Gulag, or also the Standard of Truth recording studio. So the we encourage everyone to go and sign up for the newsletter. The details for the tickets and the event will be in the newsletter. That newsletter will be coming out here in the next little while, little while, the next week or two. Anything that we can do to put it off. It's true. It'll be coming out in the next week or two uh, with the event scheduled uh, for March 16th. So if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, in uh, the podcast description, there's a link to sign up for the newsletter. So make sure you click that and sign up. Um, We all know that this event's going to sell out 
the moment the tickets hit the street. I mean, uh, Taylor Swift got nothing on this. Yeah, no, it's yeah, going to go mean, quick. It, 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 we already know. We have a friend in Layton who, I mean, Tammy's Tammy's already selling. She's got a bus. Yeah, she, she, she's, <laughs> she's got she's, a party bus. She's acquisitioned a Wendover bus, and she's bringing it down to Orem. Yep, and, and there's going to be only slightly less gambling <laughs> at this uh, venue than the Wendover buses. Slightly used to. less. So anyway, we'd love to have everybody get together. There are some people who sound excited about it. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It's going to be a lot of fun. We hope that everybody comes. We'll have, we'll have fun things that we'll do to make fun of Garrett. Uh, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world to do this. We'll have some giveaways. Uh, we'll have uh, Garrett. Will, he's been working on a juggling routine. We're very yeah. excited. Yeah. I'm a, yeah, I am a man of many talents. <laughs> Actually, I'm a man of zero talents. Love you, man, that. So w- jumping into the Phoebe Draper mailbag, hopefully we can get through that in the next 45 minutes, leaving about seven to eight minutes for um, Witnesses of the Book It'll of Mormon Part 5. It'll be next episode. As a person with the first name of Doctor, I can tell you what? it's it's what? not all it's cracked up to be. Like Dr. Falassus Hurlbut? I, I'm a dentist, oh. and as such, I'm not classified as a real doctor. When introduced as doctor, people ask if I enjoy being a doctor, and I have to clarify that I'm not that kind of doctor. I can only imagine the amount of questions you will receive on the topic. I can't wait. I can't wait to be on a plane, have somebody have some sort of cardiac event. And have them say, is there a doctor on board? And then to have me raise my hand. And then they'll say, what are you trained in? The... The referral theory of business practices. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk brokerage theory. I want to talk prospect theory. So one of the things that uh, – there's a great Nate Bargatze Saturday Night Live clip about this standing up in the, uh, in, in, on the airplane oh. as a doctor. Uh, maybe I'll put the link into the uh, – it's, it's a pretty funny clip. That's funny. Anyway, um, I went to uh, – my question for Dr. Drakmata is about the church in Pittsburgh. I went to school in Pittsburgh and attended the Pittsburgh oh. Second Ward. The go locals – Yeah, go, go Steelers. The locals claim that it is the oldest ward in the church east of the Mississippi and that Sidney Rigdon founded it. I did – uh, I did think it unusual that the oldest ward was designated the second ward. That's a- <laughs> so first that's of all, fair, doctor, that's a, that's a fair point. First of all, doctor, you have you have you've hit on a very key important piece of evidence. Oh, that's great. <laughs> this is the oldest continuous ward in Arizona. What is it? The Phoenix three hundredth ward. Um, any light and knowledge you could shed on the subject would be appreciated. I visited your website to contact you and was pleasantly surprised by it. I did find it amusing that you have to navigate to the fifth tab to see any mention of Richard, but I understand. The lawyers have instructed us that that's well, the best way to so do it. So look, we can't just have an ABD front and center. <laughs> we, we, what do you want people to do? I mean, we can't just have people coming. You know what? I'm looking for real. I'm looking for real truth. And then they just see like ABD. Well, this guy didn't even try. <laughs> Technically, I'm not even ABD yet. Oh, really? Well, I haven't defended the proposal yet. Okay. Almost ABD. Yeah. We're going to start referring to him as Professor Richard LaDuke, almost ABD. That's true. Well, so so Garrett, any any light that you can shed on the, the ward, uh, the Pittsburgh second ward being the oldest ward of the church? Uh, East of the Mississippi. E- e- I mean... So, so 
there's some problems with that, right? Um, first of all, I don't know what the clarification of East of the Mississippi would have to do with anything, given the fact that if Sidney Rigdon set it up, it would have to be prior to 1844 when he's excommunicated. We don't leave the country until 1846. Okay. So if there was a, a ward west of the Mississippi in 18, you know, 30, that would come as a surprise, <laughs> right? It would. Actually, one of the, I mean, uh, I, I appreciate your email and hope to get some free dental work, but um, one, one of the things that I think is a little bit interesting when you study Latter-day Saint history is that we assume that the the organization of the church is very similar to the way it is today. And, and and that's a normal assumption to have. It's nothing weird about that at all. You should always assume that the way things are is the way that they've been until you find out something different. Probably the biggest difference in local organization of the church between then and now is that for nearly the entirety of Joseph Smith's life, wards don't exist. Uh, they are not the unit uh, that are measured. And are there bishops? Well, there aren't bishops when the church is first founded. Uh, we have a whole podcast on that. I think maybe several on that. I think a Newell K. Whitney 19-parter. Yeah, it's it's a, it, no, it's Edward Partridge. Edward Patridge. It's yeah. Edward Patridge first. Edward Patridge is going to make you a bishop in the church. Um, the, the, the early church isn't even organized surrounding bishops and uh, ecclesiastical um geographic locations. So in the early church, all you're really going to ever see is branches of the church. Now today we use the word branch to mean, oh, there's like four people there and none of them have the Melchizedek priesthood and the missionaries are running everything, right? Yeah, it's how church was this weekend during President's Day weekend. Right. Uh, Or our friend in Alaska, (laughs) if he makes the eight-hour bicycle ride. I think it's 19 hours. I still don't know why you have him riding a bicycle. I saw I saw a a reel about it on Instagram. Someone riding from the top of uh, Alaska all the way down to the bottom of Argentina. So I just assumed that he also would do that. So anyone living in Alaska, you assume wants to ride a bike to Argentina. To Argentina. That's what I assume. To Tierra del Fuego. A hundred percent. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. See, this is why Richard is part of the podcast. <laughs> fifth page. He, he, it's reason why he's fifth page. Sure. Um. So look. There are early members of the church in Pittsburgh, and and uh, Sidney Rigdon, who's from Pennsylvania, is going to go on multiple missions there. And in fact, uh, you actually get um, a letter to the first presidency of the church from uh, a bunch of the citizens of you know the members of the church from Pittsburgh uh, in 1842. That's part of it's published in the Times and Seasons. So there's certainly members there. But they're not referring to any of the localities of the church as wards yet. They don't get wards until you have a merging of the ecclesiastical and the secular. When they first move to Commerce, Illinois, they divide the city up into three ecclesiastical geographic locations. And and call them by the name of ward. I mean, you might, uh, you know, 
notice that there are other places, other cities that that use the the nomenclature of ward to describe an an area, right? Oh, that's in the lower ninth ward. It's in the seventh ward. And they're not talking about a Latter-day Saint congregation. They're talking about a geographic location in the city. And so they adopt this terminology of ward to describe to describe this division, this ecclesiastical division that's going on in in Nauvoo. Um, here's uh, where you can find that. It's in the Times and Seasons. They publish the minutes. Uh, so you can go to joesmithpapers.org and find this, or you can probably find the Times and Seasons, uh, October 1839 uh, conference minutes, where they describe the first thing that the, the group has to do, because they've just moved there. I mean, Joseph's only freshly out of out of Liberty Jail, basically. The meeting was opened by prayer by President Joseph Smith Jr., after which he was appointed president and a James Sloan clerk of the conference, or Kirk of the conference, which is, you know, Littners. The, the, the Littners, the Kirk. I think I'm having a stroke in slow motion over the past few weeks. Within a few, within a few weeks, I'm just going to be mumbling to myself, I think. Just in time for the live yeah. audience. <laughs> Why do I smell toast? Um, uh, the president then spoke at some length <laughs> upon the situation of the church, the difficulties that they had to contend with, and the manner in which they'd been led to this place. He's talking about commerce. And wished to know the views of the brethren, whether they wished to appoint this a stake or not, stating that he believed it to be a good place and suited for the saints. So he presents, should we make this where we are going to stay, the stake of the church? And then they they uh, listed off. It was then unanimously agreed upon that it should be appointed a stake and a place of gathering for the saints, and the following officers were then appointed. William Marks to be president. Bishop Newell K. Whitney to be bishop of the middle ward. Bishop Edward Parcher to be bishop of the upper ward. And Bishop Vincent Knight to be bishop of the lower ward. So the, the earliest wards you get in the church are these three wards. You get the upper, lower, and middle wards of commerce slash Nauvoo. Um, and the um, the bishops who were appointed to be that, obviously, were, you know, Newell K. Whitney and Edward Partridge have been serving in, the, in bishop roles for, for nearly a decade at this point, whereas Vincent Knight is going to come a little bit later on. Eventually, they are going to... Um, they're going to expand. Those three wards are going to expand into many more wards in Nauvoo. So I I don't know. I mean, look, I'm sure there's some reason for the claim, right? I'm sure that there's some reason, you know, maybe they're claiming it's the, you know, the, the longest existing branch. And that when all the other branches of the church closed down, this one didn't, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can argue that, but, um, to give you an idea by, uh, by 1842, there's going to be 11 named wards in Nauvoo, and they will sound familiar to you. Rather than the upper, middle, and lower, they are going to become the first ward, the second ward, there you the go. third ward. The Pittsburgh ward. second ward. Did it make it? The Pittsburgh second ward isn't one of the, Nauvoo, the Nauvoo wards. wards. Oh, that's, oh, dang. So it, it, you know, in kind of a surprise, actually. <laughs> a bit of an yeah, upset. Yeah, in a little bit of an upset, the Pittsburgh ward, not one of the, not one of the Nauvoo wards. Yeah, How about that. Um, so, it, 
this this idea of wards is then carried forward, of course, to Salt Lake, and and you have the establishment of these geographical locations that are also ecclesiastical boundaries, and really becomes one of the more unique aspects of of Latter Day Saint theology. I mean, one of the unique aspects for Latter Day Saints as non Catholic Christians is that we have geographic locations. And all of the members living in that geographic location attend the same congregation. So thank you, Dr. Jacob, for that inquiry. I wish I could be a little bit more helpful. I, I would need to have a better idea of what their claim is. Um, on the face of it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Sidney Rigdon is certainly uh, very prominent in preaching, like I said, multiple missions. Of course, the other problem is that Sidney Rigdon, after his excommunication, also goes back to Pennsylvania where he founds his own church. Is it possible that Dr. Jacob isn't actually a member of the church? Perhaps he's, possible. Maybe he's just a member of Church of Jesus Christ. That's possible. Yeah. You know what? Thanks for listening. Are you a, are you a bicker tonight? Because <laughs> that's what they're called. Okay. Uh, Sidney Rigdon goes back. Remember we were going to do a whole thing on apostates? Uh, we said we were. Uh, apostles and apostates and apothecaries. We did, we did apostles, apostates, and apothecaries. That was roughly the same time that we were getting... We were going to do a multi-parter. We did one and a half parts. What did we do with the other part? We just we, we were going to do a whole bunch, and then we started talking about Moroni. Oh, I thought it was because of Willard Richards and his many guns. It's possible. At any rate, he goes back to Monongahela, Pennsylvania, and establishes his own church, and then gets excommunicated from his own church uh, that he established because he was he was trying to force them into the law of consecration in a way that they didn't want to. And so one of his converts takes over that church, and his name's William Bickerton, and that's why they are called Bickertonites. And there are roughly 20,000 Bickertonites who 100% believe in the Book of Mormon, do not accept any of the revelations of Joseph Smith or anything else coming from it. The Book of Mormon, absolutely the Word of God. No Book of Commandments, no doctrine. At their heyday, twenty thousand, not currently twenty. I think currently, currently twenty. So currently, so I would brother say brother Jacob might be Doctor Brother Jacob. So it's Doctor Brother Jacob of Bicker Tonight fame. It's possible. Jacob, we're going to need you to both perform a free root canal <laughs> for me, and also uh, tell us whether or not you're a Bicker Tonight. Thank you very much, Jacob, uh, for for the email and for helping Garrett with his dead tooth. Um, we- <laughs> I don't even need one, but you know what? I want one now. A- elective drukana. <laughs> because I said Lindner. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's, uh, you've already had the uh, anesthetic. Um, so this uh, this email comes to us from from Whitney. Whitney, we we have friends of the show. Whitney is on a tear. Whitney is both talented and hilarious. Very funny. Yeah. Several, so we've talked about a, a fan page. We've actually received several very, very funny uh, cartoons and uh, GIFs or memes recently that have been very funny. Whitney's produced about half of them, and they are all hilarious. If we do a fan page, so I want to do a fan page, and I want to call it um, a Dirk Moss fan page. And it's got oh, like boy. the three Nephites in the background picture, you know, and and some evangelical Christians taking over a pulpit, something like that. And then we yeah. and then we show some of these different funny memes and cartoons and things. It'd be it'd be very very funny. Anyway, um, Whitney has produced about half of them. Very very good. If if we do it, it's because Whitney's produced so many funny things that we want to be able to to share them. 
Uh, but Whitney sends an email, really enjoying the Lucy Harris Wicked Witch of the Restoration episode. That's funny. That is very funny. What I really enjoy is the premium, uh, but what I really enjoy is the premium content. I have been training for a marathon, and as my legs burn and my feet blister, I have learned that God chose me to suffer somehow. That makes me feel better. That God cared enough about me individually to make me hurt myself. <laughs> really fascinating how you can sum up theology in a way that makes me laugh, and I'm gonna <laughs> and I'm gonna burn in hell forever. Well, you know what? You know what? There Look, you ask welcome, any Christian Whitney. and you'll know. <laughs> um, so Whitney's from Texas. You'll get that here. If y'all have a second premium channel, Sue Premium, that covers the fall. Sue Premium. <laughs> that I want the, to have one now. No, I do too. That covers the fall and Nicene Creed and early Christian saints. I will also sign up for that. I did find an Instagram account that's, uh, seem, uh, that summed up or that seemed up Garrett's alley. It's called uh, "What's in Your Bible," which is pretty, pretty fun. funny. Yeah, Becky's my Becky's dream is to uh, m- for me for us to make enough money to pay carrot Garrett carrot to pay carrot. So you to were just attacking troll. me for saying Littner. <laughs> you just called me a vegetable. <laughs> my least favorite. By the you don't way, like carrots. Eight carrots more than i hate onions more than i more than anyone hates anything why do you hate carrots they are just what about a baby carrot if it tastes like meat like if it's in a roast so so wait you like cooked carrots i like carrots that taste like beef do you like them or you tolerate them like will you i will tolerate them them. but you don't seek them out i would never seek them out so so i'm convinced that it's some sort of genetic issue you know some people like 10 percent of the population they say that cilantro tastes like soap I'm convinced that just carrots are just the grossest. So first thing. of all, you're dropping some libel on cilantro that I didn't know about. Uh, look, I'll get our crack research data. I mean, on. I'm, like, I'm we've seen some confident. memes about our crack research. I'm staff. pretty confident it's ten percent. Where there's something where cilantro tastes like soap to them. I just think it tastes like terrible. So I, <laughs> okay, like I don't like cilantro, but it's not like it tastes like soap. Yeah. So carrots, carrots to me are just the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. I throat. ate onions so much that they ruin. All the foods I like, because people will put them in there. Yeah, they will. Thinking they're making them better. Is it the texture or the taste? Uh, all of it. This is the whole thing. I mean, look, I. It's the experience. And <laughs> he's shouting from the background. No, no. I mean, look, I love onion powder. Okay. But so. that doesn't taste anything like a real onion. And if it did, then why aren't you all just cooking with onion powder and stop putting pieces of onion in my stuff? Right. It's a good question. It's not the same. It's not, it's not the, the same. same. Yeah. What? Uh, next email. <laughs> Thank Aaron. you, Whitney. From You're Aaron. amazing. Whitney's uh, amazing. I want to have something called Supremium. Uh, it sounds kind of like a pizza. But. So this is what should the subject, what should Oliver have studied out in his mind? Um, this comes to us from Eric. I love listening to the Standard of Truth podcast. The podcast has given me a lot of food for thought and laughs over the past year or so that I've been listening I'm a neuroscientist who studies the effects of general anesthesia on the rat brain. Sometimes wow. I need to do mindless tasks at work, <laughs> and I've long gravitated towards church history podcasts to pass the time. So we, so we are the mindless task. Yes. Uh, as we, he's just putting rat brain you know, yeah. on slides. As he slices up rat brain, he's like, you know what I could go for? <laughs> I could go for some township discussion right about now. 
I was listening to the standard of truth and heard how much you enjoy hearing from your listeners. Then, <laughs> which we do. Yeah. Then, in the middle of Friday night, I woke up and thought of a question that I had never thought of before. I immediately put it on my calendar to email you the question, lest I forgot it by the morning. Here is the question. We know, as you recently reminded us in the podcast, that Joseph often didn't look at the gold plates when he was translating the Book of Mormon. We also know from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 8 and 9, that Oliver Cowdery had the opportunity to help translate, but that he did not continue as he commenced and had the privilege taken away, DNC 9.5, and he was famously taught that he, had, that he took no thought save it were to ask God. And that the correct way to translate would be to study it out in his mind, then asking God if it is right. First, do we know the means of translation that Oliver tried to use when he translated? Seer stones, interpreters, something else. Second, if he commenced translating correctly, as it seems to imply in, in Doctrine and Covenants section 9 verse 5, do we know which part of the Book of Mormon was translated by Oliver? Third, and actually my main question, assuming I am interpreting Doctrine and Covenants section 9, verses 7 through 9 correctly, what was Oliver supposed to study out in his mind? Even if Oliver had the plates in front of him, which he didn't see in person until he, later that year, I don't know that they would have provided him with any more information to study out in his mind, since they were written in an unknown language, or another way of looking at it, since Joseph was successful in translating, what was he studying out in his mind as he translated? I imagine Joseph and Oliver both could have studied it out by comparing any words that came to their minds with what they already knew about the gospel. Similarly, or similar to how we can verify the truth of impressions we receive by comparing them to the words of the prophets. But that's all I could come up with. Part of the motivation for my question is curiosity, but part of it is also hoping that the answer will provide a greater understanding about what I should be studying out in my mind as I seek personal revelation from the Lord. Thanks again for sharing your knowledge and testimony so freely. Warm regards, Eric. Well, thank you, Eric. It's what a very is, thoughtful question. It, well, it's I almost mean, as though he's a neuroscientist. It's like, yeah, it's... It, I don't think we can answer questions from neuroscientists because they're smarter than we are. Yeah, we'd like to actually, we'd like to hear from listeners, but we'd like to stop listening or getting emails from listeners that are smart. Yeah, we need to get emails from people. <laughs> I, I think if you're slicing up any type of animal's brain and putting it on slides, I mean... For science. For science. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to hear from you if it's not for science. I mean... <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Eric emailed and said, I was slicing up rat brains the other day for fun, you know, just to pass the time. And I thought to myself, what was Oliver doing? <laughs> what was he thinking? So this actually, um, I mean, as, as Oliver is uh, one of the main witnesses of the gold plates, I think this is a, a good story to talk about. And especially as it relates to translation. Um some of you might know that I uh, co-authored two books on the translation of the Book of Mormon. Um, and the, the one most recently was one through the Deseret Book, Let's Talk About series, which was designed to provide questions and answers for people, you know, who've heard things like their friend has said, we know Joseph Smith used a rock and a hat, right? And then, you know, did a 360 ollie off of a 
off a rail, you know. Extreme anti-Mormon Texan. The extreme anti-Mormon. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's like, like, you know, he, he he was looking at rocks, right? And then and then, whoo, you know, and he does the, the he does a tail whip, and then, um, and, and so the the purpose of that was to help people find those answers. But one of the uh, criticisms actually that people had of that, and you know, it, it's a fair criticism. The, the problem is the book was only allowed to be very, very, very small because they wanted to be basically something very accessible to anybody. So there are all kinds of things we could have put in the book, um, but didn't because you don't have space. It's that way a lot for an author. Uh, I recently uh, wrote an article that will appear in the Liahona on the translation of the Book of Mormon. And I, I, they basically handed it to me and said, you have 10 words, go. I mean, it wasn't that bad, but it's like, hey, you know that super ridiculously complex topic for which there's hundreds of sources, for which there are multiple books that have been written, for which there are dozens of different perspectives? We need a paragraph. And, and you understand why you're trying to make it accessible to everyone. But, you know, I, I've talked about this before um, in in the past on the podcast, but it bears repeating, at least um, it bears, you know, while I'm trying to get the image of sliced rat brain out of my head, um, that when historians write, there's, there's a catch-22 for us. If you've ever thought, boy, whenever I read history books, they're the most boring thing in the world. First of all, you're right, but only because you haven't read Richard's business manuals. Oh my gosh, they're so boring. He sent me one of the articles he was reading, and I was like, sounds good. I mean, it was terrible. It It was written like the person had never interacted with a real other person ever in their life. Certainly never kissed a girl. Oh, there's no question. I mean, why couldn't you at least, you know, chat GPT this thing? I it, mean, was, it, was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty rough. jargony. It was, it was rough. It was rough. But the problem for academics is um, that the more, and, and look, you know this, obviously you've, you've done all kinds of research and, and publications when it comes to, to science, that the more accessible you make what you're writing and saying, the less accurate it becomes. Now, that sounds like that shouldn't be the case, but but it is, right? I mean, um, you're, you're, uh, you, you see this all the time merely by omission of details. So you, we say things all the time that are wild superlatives that are all-inclusive, but someone can always, you know, take issue with and say, well, actually there's da 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 right? So, for instance, someone could say something like, um, you know, all of the faithful Latter-day Saints left uh, Nauvoo by May of 1846 as they headed, they headed, you know, towards winter quarters. Now, I can understand why someone would say that. The actuality is there are a few other people that are specifically sent back to Nauvoo to do things like close accounts, settle, you know, uh, properties, try to sell some of the properties. But you realize how jargony that would sound if someone were to, when, when they're, what they're trying to write is, this is when the church left, when most people were out of Nauvoo, how jargony it would sound if every time you did that, you said, well, you know, the, the church left for winter quarters, except for these people who didn't leave for winter quarters. This has nothing to do with the story that I'm trying to tell you, but let me tell you this, just so you know that there were other people who didn't go. You can't do that every sentence. Um, 
And so one of the things we couldn't really engage in was this discussion about translation. For a lot of people, this is how they have thought about translation. Now, there's some important aspects to this that I think people have been taught different things about these scriptures. When I was taught about DNC 8 and 9, there wasn't even any focus on the translation of the Book of Mormon at all, like at all. When I was taught in seminary, it was, this is how you receive personal revelation. And you have to study it out in your mind and in your heart. And, you know, you have to, you have to think about it. You can't just take no thought, save it were to ask me. And then if you get the stupor of thought, then, you know, it's wrong. And if you get the, the burning in the bosom that it's right. Is that for you, Richard? I mean, mine, mine was a little different. Actually, mine was actually closer to to kind of Eric's experience. Okay, so... In seminary for me... In seminary. Yeah, right. When they were talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon. yeah. So I think this is one of those cases where we don't actually know what, what is specifically being meant by these verses. The problem is there's an awful lot of commentary that people have made on it as if it is incredibly clear what's meant by it. So let's start with uh, chapter 8 so that we we can start with, uh, sorry, section 8, chapter 8. <laughs> what are we talking about, the Book of Mormon here? Uh, section 8. Um, um, so that we can... Um, we can we can get this. Oliver Cowdery, verily I say unto you, that as surely as the Lord liveth, who is your God and your Redeemer, even so surely shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever things you shall ask in faith, with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive a knowledge concerning the engravings of old records, which are ancient, which contain those parts of my scripture, of which has been spoken by the manifestation of my spirit. So the first part here is that one thing that that I notice is that clearly there's there's an inquiry that's already going on, um, that Joseph and and Oliver are in the midst of translating. They're only a few; they can really only be a couple weeks into translating at this point. And I, I I'll continue, but I'll, but I'll come back here. But yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and shall dwell in your heart. Now, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, it's the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Therefore, this is thy gift. Apply unto it, and blessed art thou, for it should deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. Um, we actually had another listener email in because they uh, were talking about how the original version of Doctrine and Covenants section 8 had something different in it. Uh, when you get to verse 6, um, in your current Doctrine and Covenants, it says, Now this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. Hmm. Now that is, what is this gift of Aaron, right? So, I mean, I don't know how many times you, you read that, and like, he has the gift of Aaron, which has told him many things. Now, I think probably the first place your mind goes is Aaronic priesthood, right? Sure. But this is a revelation received in April of 1829. Well before. 
before they've received the Aaronic Priesthood in May of 1829. So whatever is being referenced in this revelation can't be the Aaronic Priesthood, or at least them having the Aaronic Priesthood conferred upon them. Obviously, God can use his power however God wants. I'm not going to... I don't paint God into a box and say, oh yeah, this is the only way God does things. Um, So there's some kind of reference that's going on there. Clearly, prior to, or at least immediately after, Oliver Cowdery's interaction with Joseph, Oliver already had something that is being called a gift, which has told him many things. Verse 7, behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Therefore, doubt not, for it is the gift of God. And you shall hold it in your hands and do marvelous works, and no power will be able to take it from your hands. So as I said, that's a little bit cryptic. But let's go back to the original version of Doctrine and Covenants section 8, and we will read that. So this is the earliest version that is in the Book of Commandments and Revelations. Again, that that uh, agains. Wow. wow, what what happened? Wow, we really need to start editing this thing up. We're just not going to, though, right? Well, we do when I when I make mistakes, we don't. When you do, we, we try to keep. But we're you, leaving this one in. Yeah, we're trying to keep you protected. We're trying to. Yeah, you know. I think at this point the mask is off. Yeah, we're trying to protect yeah. the cash cow. But the, it's yeah, not they happening. they know that I'm only just a, a couple of weeks away from not being able to speak in coherent sentences anymore. Um, the Book of Commandments and Revelations is the manuscript revelation book that they copied all of these early revelations, you assume loose leaf revelations that they copied into one giant book. But when I say a manuscript, I mean, it's a handwritten thing. They then take that manuscript revelation book and they use it as a source to publish the 1833 book of commandments. And then also the 1835 doctrine and covenants. So in most cases for those early revelations, the earliest version we can get our hands on is in the Book of Commandments and Revelation. And some of them aren't in there, as we talked about on a previous episode. Some are ripped out. Some are not there. I mean, it's 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 gone through a lot. Um, some are only partially there, like, you know, D&C 10 was only half of it's in there. But And the way it reads in this earlier version uh, is, is pretty different. A revelation to Oliver. He being desirous to know whether the Lord would grant him the gift of translation. Now, here's what's interesting. What what John Whitmer had originally written, and then he scratched it out, was he wrote, whether the Lord would grant him the gift of revelation. And then he crossed that out and wrote translation. Now, John Whitmer's the one copying it into the revelation book. I don't know if that's important. But for whatever reason, he he's writing the gift of revelation when he first writes it down. Oliver, verily, verily, I say unto you that as surely as the Lord liveth, which is your God and your Redeemer, even so sure shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever things you shall ask with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive, a knowledge concerning the engravings of old records, which are ancient, which contain those parts of my scriptures of which have been spoken by manifestation of my spirit. So that all sounds pretty similar. I, I mean, that's almost word for word, although maybe spelled better. Um, but yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart 
by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you, which shall dwell in your heart. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Therefore, this is thy gift. Apply unto it. And blessed art thou, for it shall deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. When, when if it were not so, they would slay thee. And bring thy soul to destruction. Oh, remember these words and keep my commandments. So this is all this is all almost word for word what is in your current doctrine and covenants. Keep my commandments. Remember, this is thy gift. Now, this is not all, for thou hast another gift, which is the gift, and here it said the gift of Aaron, right? Which is the gift of working with the sprout. Did you see that coming? I I did not see that coming. You, do you have some facts on cilantro? I do, actually. It's a, roughly uh, 4 to 14%. Now, that's according to Martha Stewart's website, which is, I think, the What's, New England Journal of Medicine is very similar to... Uh, to Martha Stewart's website? That's right. Yeah. 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 I, it's a uh, tier others, one journal? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a tier one journal. For business people, well, it is. Reddit had it 3 to 21%, and I'm like, get out of here, Reddit. Martha Stewart, all right, four to fourteen percent. So right in the range of about ten percent of that people. That it tastes like soap. There's a certain yeah. There's a certain chemical, certain so, genetic. So why would people put cilantro in anything if fifteen to twenty percent of the people eating it will hate you for it? Well, so people like you, if I'm going through Cafe Rio, I say no cilantro, please. But for but, me, I'm like but it's extra mi- cilantro. It's mixed into the rice for some people. That's a good point. Well, you know what? You're you're catering to ninety percent of the of the people. So so, so you just don't even care about the two percent. You do not. You do not leave the ninety and nine. I've done. Look, yeah, going after the yeah, going after the one. That's not the same as market research. I market see. research suggests I should sell to the ninety and yeah. nine. Sheep. So market research is I don't even care about the other sheep. No, no, no. We don't care about them. We want to focus our target market here is the uh, these ninety nine sheep. And and these ninety nine sheep will eventually reproduce and create other sheep. So that's our real yeah, cash cow. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, I like these business interludes, but. Notice that it said, the gift, which is the gift of working with the sprout. Behold, it hath told you things. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this thing of nature. So that's something different, right? This thing of nature to work in your hands, for it is the work of God. And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask, you shall ask to tell you by that means that he, that will he grant unto you. That you may, that you shall know, remember. Oh, sorry. There's no, there's no punctuation. So I, I just ran a sentence on there. Let me go back and and read it again. Therefore, whatsoever you shall ask to tell you by that means, that will he grant unto you. That you shall know, no. That you shall know. Remember that without faith you can do nothing. Trifle not with these things. Do not ask for that which ye ought not to ask. That you may know the mysteries of God. And that you may translate all those ancient records which have been hit up, which are sacred. And according to your faith shall it be done unto you. Behold, it is I that have spoken it, and I am the same which spake unto you from the beginning. Amen. So there's one anomaly. So there's a couple anomalies we need to talk about here. Uh, obviously, sprout is a big one. So we're going to we're gonna have to spend a little time on sprout. Um, I can only assume that Josh is... is Rapidly dialing our number as he listens to this, saying, what are you guys talking about? Um, What's clear is that Oliver Cowdery, apparently, prior to his association with Joseph Smith, is someone who has worked with a 
a rod or a dousing rod or a, 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 a tree branch, essentially, as a means of getting answers from God. Yeah, yeah people, Richard was showing me how he would use it if he was looking for water <laughs> in the floor of my second, my upstairs it's, it's an bedroom. audio medium. Yes, but, yes. If this was a video medium, all of you, it would have been such a delight. This is why you need to go to the live recording. That's right. You would have seen Richard in his glory demonstrating what that looked like. This sounds crazy to someone today. Now, I, I say that, guarantee there's several people listening right now who themselves have used scrying rods, which is what they're called, or dousing rods, to find water. Generally, it's someone who's a farmer, and they've used they and they can't explain how it works, but the, the rods cross over one another, and you dig right there, and what do you know? That's where the water is to have a well. In Joseph Smith's time, People, they, they didn't understand science at all. I mean, at all. I, they, they literally believe that you are sick because you have too much blood in your body. They literally believe that you are sick because you allowed your body's temperature to get too cold and that's what caused you to get sick and to start sneezing, right? I mean... They have no concept of bacteria or viruses or anything. And so it's easy to look back on them and kind of be like, wow. I mean, they, they could have done with some more neuroscientists slicing some rat brains probably, <laughs> right? So when it came to some things, they, they used terms that were expansive but also had very little meaning. One of their favorite terms that they used to mean almost anything is electromagnetism, and they use it for all kinds of stuff. Um, and and look, they understand that electricity exists. I mean, you know, we all know about Benjamin Franklin and the key on the kite, right? So they understand that lightning is electricity. They get that. They understand that there's also forces that somehow interact with one another, like magnets and things like that. They have legitimately no idea why. It's not like they understand atoms and, and, and you know, oh yeah, that's obviously because the neutrons here are forming a covalent bond. with. They don't understand any of that, okay? That's all later. And so what happens in the, in the kind of in the, in the dearth of scientific, actual scientific understanding is they assign terminologies to things that seem to be the case, even though we wouldn't be able to explain how that really works. So let's talk about the scrying rod or the sprout that he has. It's very interesting that the revelation, this is God speaking to Oliver Cowdery. During that time period, people believe that there were certain people whose hands were delicate enough who were, you know, had enough electromagnetism in themselves. Again, it's a word that means nothing, but it means some kind of power. That when they held a freshly cut, you know, a forked green, you know, uh, sapling, that the water inside the sapling would actually pulsate towards water hidden under the ground. And that... Only certain people had hands that were in tune enough 
to be able to feel those pulsations. So we call that crazy. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what we, I mean, I, everyone listening right now is like, tell me some more about cilantro. Um, but, but they don't think it, that it's crazy. They think just look, just like not everyone uh, can, you know, be the doctor dentist, right? Not everyone has the ability to have their hands be steady enough. Not everyone has the ability to, to, to see blood and be okay. Not everyone has the ability to smell that smell of burning tooth when they're drilling it and be okay with it. That doesn't mean that it, that, that those things don't exist, right? It means that not everyone has the gifted, and we still say things like, oh, you know, she's such a gifted surgeon. We, we say, well, what does that even mean? Like, well, she, she has such careful hands. She's able to do such, such a good job in her surgeries. It, clearly, different people have different motor skills. In their world, that's kind of how they saw it. Not everybody has hands that are in touch enough that they can feel the pulsations of the water from these dousing rods or scrying rods. And clearly, Oliver Cowdery appears to be one of those people. Now, another way that sometimes these rods were used was by people trying to get answers. from. I, I'm a little worried right now because I, I, I can see Richard. He appears to be trying to look up dousing rods on the internet right now. No, it's also cilantro. Okay, good. Whew. I was worried. Well, Mexico is the largest exporter. California is the is state. It has it produces fifty six million pounds of cilantro a year. Man, so I did look up. I did look up I sprouts for a I second, was, but I, I did the, the siren song of cilantro brought me back. It brought you back. I like that. I like that that you're always going to go back to our roots, or in this case, a nasty plant. That's right. That that tastes terrible and not even like soap, just terrible to begin with. Um. Some people use these rods as ways of trying to get answers from God, right? So they'd ask questions and then have, you know, if they felt the rod pulled down, then that would be a yes. And if they didn't, then that would be a no kind of a thing. That sounds crazy to you. But how many of you struggling with something in your life has sat there with a closed set of scriptures and said to God, God, I, I just need, I need your direction. You know, whatever scripture I open to, let it be what directs me. How many people have done that? Right? Yeah. Quite a few. And you know what? You're using an external object, the scriptures, and you're hoping that God guides that external object to where it's something that inspires you. And not because you're crazy but because you believe in God, right? So it's actually just a manifestation of faith. And so for, for Cowdery, clearly he feels like he's got the ability to find water, you know, with a dousing rod, like, like many people do. Dousing is not weird at all in 19th century America. It's how people look for wells in 19th century America. Although you think it's a lot easier in the East, right? Yeah. How, how come we didn't have any of that? We got to, got to Salt Lake, but, um, Heber C. Kimball will also use a dousing rod. So it's a very common thing then, but just sounds crazy to us today. And God, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel with people, he always seems to take people 
where they're at. He takes people with the beliefs they already have. Even if some of those, look, he didn't sit Oliver down and say, you know what, Oliver, I got to tell you this electromagnetism, not a thing. You know I mean? Look, it's a thing, but not the way you think it's a thing. You know, if you were to take a, you know, an astrophysics course that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll reveal in the coming years, I mean, God doesn't do that. He simply uses Cowdery's already existing belief to try to incorporate the way God wants to give Oliver Cowdery some answers. So one of the, so so one of the first things I want to say about this, Eric, is I don't think any of us actually know what's going on fully in this conversation. Because you can't fully explain, nor can I, what ways Oliver Cowdery is actually using this sprout, which they will later come to refer to as his gift of Aaron, because they believe that it's a gift. Remember, Joseph has a gift to translate, and it's prior to him receiving any priesthood office at all. Joseph Smith is translating words from the gold plates, using these seer stones, Urim and Thummim, whatever you want to say, using the stones that God has prepared from 1827, at least as early as 1828. And it's not until April, or May, sorry, of 1829 that he receives even the Aaronic priesthood. And generally, all of us would say, well, translation of uh, languages uh, by a seer, that's obviously got to be a Melchizedek priesthood thing, you know. As, as the way we divide it up. So I think first and foremost, I think we need to step back a little bit on Doctrine and Covenant section eight because I'm not entirely sure exactly what's being discussed. Here's the other reason why I'm a little hesitant to be definitive about what is being discussed. For whatever reason, Doctrine and Covenant section eight does not mention the gold plates. Now, this is not because God isn't willing to mention the plates. In Doctrine and Covenants section 5, he's more than willing to reference the plates. He's more than willing to reference the plates in other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. In Doctrine and Covenants section 17, which we are going to spend even more time on at some future date, because this is going to be Witnesses Part 11 at this point, um, he, he references the plates. But notice that he doesn't actually reference the plates in this revelation. We simply assume that it's the plates. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad assumption. It could very well be a great assumption. But it is an assumption. It doesn't say gold plates. What does it say? You shall receive a knowledge concerning the engravings of old records which are ancient, which contain those parts of my scripture, which have been spoken by the manifestation of my spirit. Well, well, sure, the only old records has got to be the plates. I mean, I think that's why we make that assumption. But once again, when it's referenced at the end, um, you will know the mysteries of God that you may translate all those ancient records which have been hit up, which are sacred. That's kind of an interesting terminology, isn't it? Why is it referencing records in this plural and all of those ancient records if it's just the plates? Here's the other wrench or the other, the other, 
the other fly in the ointment here, we're not entirely sure the order in which Doctrine and Covenants section 8, section 7, and section 9 are received. Clearly, we understand that 9 comes after 8. But the way that these are originally listed in the Book of Commandments, the first revelation is is section 8, and then section 7, and then section 9. Well, what is section 7? We have a, I think we have multiple podcasts on it, right? I think so. They're probably terrible. Uh, oh, there's no question. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, look, are they worse than this one? I don't know. There's less cilantro facts in those, so so yeah. But I there's guess. more Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Oh, okay. You know what? All right, it's a wash. It's a push. <laughs> yeah. And, and to put it in terms Richard can understand, <laughs> it's a push. Terms. It's a push. Yeah, you lose your vig. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it always wins. <laughs> well, so Doctrine Covenant Section 7 is precisely what? It's another ancient record that has been written and hidden up, written by the Apostle John, that Joseph Smith, through the Urim and Thummim, translates, and that's how you have Doctrine and Covenants section 7. There's a lot more going on here than I think we know. When we assume that the only question is, can Oliver Cowdery translate the plates, when at the very time... Joseph is also translating completely different other ancient records. I I think we have to be a little bit careful. So when we jump to uh, Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 9, the... We can read the answer there. We'll we'll, we'll use the, the modern version of that so that it's a little bit easier to read. And it's punctuated. Behold, I say unto you, my son that because you did not translate according to that which you desired of me and did commence again to write for my servant, Joe Smith Jr., even so I would that you should continue until you have finished this record, which I have entrusted unto him. Notice verse 2. And then behold, other records have I that I will give unto you power that you may assist to translate. Once again, Doctrine and Covenants section 9 is referencing something else, some other record. It's not just the plates. Now, maybe that's what's going on, or maybe it's not. Be patient, my son, for it's wisdom and me. It's not expedient you should translate at this present time. Build the work which you are called is to write for my servant Joseph. Now, here's where you get this, this explanation that, behold, you have not understood you have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, and then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, it will cause your bosom to burn within you, wherefore you shall feel that it is right. Now, if you had known this, you could have translated, right? So verse 9, I guess I shouldn't skip over. But if it's not right, you'll have no such feelings, but you'll have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. There is something going on here that is a preparation that Oliver Cowdery either did not fully achieve or did not uh, fully undertake. 
in some ways, it almost seems like he he didn't even know this, right? Verse 10, now, if you had known this, you could have translated. Nevertheless, it's not expedient that you should translate. Behold, it was expedient when you commenced, but you feared. And the time has passed and it is not expedient now. So here's a great question that we don't know. We don't know why there was a need or an expediency for Oliver Cowdery to translate during this time in April. Maybe, you know, Joseph was really tired. Maybe uh, he had, you know, he, he had some things he had to do or whatever. And, and that's why Oliver Cowdery needed to step in. Maybe Joseph was sick. I don't think we have any idea why Oliver Cowdery, it was expedient that he should translate. Here's what we do know. Whatever preparations he undertook, at some point he feared and the time is now past. You took no thought, save it were be to ask me. For me, the way I interpreted this, and look, this is speculative because we don't know what's going on here. When people talk definitively about these sections, they're talking definitively knowing, or or maybe not knowing, that we don't know almost anything about what's going on. Do we have Oliver Cowdery's writing in the original manuscript that demonstrates that he was translating? There is a very, very, very small place where Joseph Smith's handwriting is in the original manuscript. Like basically the end of a sentence, you know, kind of thing. Well, the end of a thought. And so people said, oh, well, maybe that was Oliver Cowdery translating. I know Royal Skousen thinks probably more likely that, you know, Oliver fell asleep and that Joseph just did it, finished out, finished it out on, on his own. Or maybe Oliver had to leave, whatever. So it's not entirely clear that Oliver began to translate the gold plates at all, that he attempted to, okay, but but when it says that um, if you had started as you commenced, right, I don't know if commenced means translate or if it means prepare to translate. I don't know what that means. Does it mean, look, you started trying to get your mind right? trying to think about holy things in order to get you to the right place, then you didn't keep doing that, and then you didn't have the ability to translate. We know from David Whitmer's explanation that Joseph couldn't translate either unless he was spiritually prepared. You make a great point, Eric, that they're not looking at the plates. Oliver Cowdery hasn't seen the plates yet. So clearly, Oliver is not studying the plates in order to do the translation. But what was it that God wanted him to do? Did he want him to spiritually purify himself, to prepare his faith so that when the time came to translate, whether it was the gold plates or whether it was some other record, that he was in the right frame of mind to be able to do it? That's what my speculation is and that doctrine and covenant section eight and nine are actually not terribly helpful 
in explaining how Joseph Smith translated the gold plates, because this is an explanation of how Oliver Cowdery didn't translate, not how he did, right? It's, it's an explanation of what Oliver was told to do with some very specific things about Oliver, like the fact that he used a sprout, right? That God knew that he had this power, this gift to, to, to feel the vibrations in the, sp- in the sprout. So I don't really know. And I know that's not the answer people want. The answer people want is they want me to be definitive and they want me to say, this is what this means and this is what this means. And, and they want me to say, you know, I know that cilantro tastes good and it doesn't. They want me to... Big Cilantro wants you to say that. You know, big Cilantro, they've been pushing it for years. They have. They were going to sponsor this podcast. And I said, well, you know what? I have integrity. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they absolutely pulled out all their advertising. Yeah, they've lost yeah, millions I mean, of dollars. I mean, the, the, the next time someone offers to sponsor our podcast will be the first time. Um, probably because of content like this. So I don't know exactly, but this is, that, that's how I understand it. The way I understand it, or the way, at least the way it makes sense to me, is I'm not even entirely sure that Oliver Cowdery was attempting to translate the gold plates rather than a manuscript of John, which is DNC 7. I'm not entirely sure that he ever actually translates anything rather than just commences to prepare himself to translate. And I'm not entirely sure what is on Oliver's mind that is causing him such problems and fear. Without knowing what those the answers to those questions are i think it becomes really difficult to say yeah well we know oliver couldn't translate because of this i don't even know what he's afraid of and anyone who says that they do know what he's afraid of they're speculating and i think part of the problem surrounding dnc 8 and 9 and 7 really is there's lots of speculation that people don't say is speculation they, they say it like it's definitive when the text is far from definitive. Oliver, from all we can understand, has not yet seen the plates. So whatever this preparation for translation was, it doesn't seem to be him viewing the plates. Now, maybe he was viewing characters that Joseph copied off the plates, whatever. I, I don't know. I know we promised it for a long time. We're going to have to not read any emails. We're going to have to kick me off of the podcast. Okay. It's going to be just welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast with your host, Professor Richard LaDuke. And that's it. <laughs> I'll have nothing to say, but we'll get we'll get right to the ending. Well, I think that's the most important part. It is. The only way for us to finish is if we don't ever answer any emails from anyone. I, I think you did say that we were going to be talking about, we were going to be reading some of the- The accounts of the witnesses? Yes. Yeah, we got no chance of that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, we're, we're well out of time. Yeah, I mean, there are people who stopped listening 20 minutes ago who are right now saying, yeah, you don't have time for that. I I know that could probably be frustrated to some people- at the same time, the purpose of the podcast is try to answer people's questions, and my guess is those are some of the questions that other people have. The, the translation, the issue with Oliver Cowdery, that for sure is something that lots of people have thought of. So. Whether or not he has a sprout that he uses to receive answers. Every one of them are thinking that. Yeah. It, it was why you brought up cilantro in the first place. You're it like, really is. That sprout that Oliver Cowdery has kind of looks like cilantro. Yeah. So we we, we really appreciate uh, all the listeners to the, to the podcast and- 
Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.